So we're going to have classes on Pesach. Oh, we finished the bag? Except for the last little bracketed section, which I wasn't planning on teaching, so yes. Okay. So we have today, tomorrow, three days next week, and two days the week after that. Yes? Yes. That gives us a total of how many classes? Seven days. And Pesach is seven days, so there you go. Like each class will be devoted to one day of Pesach. There's stuff on like each day of Kalamai? No. <laughs> no. In fact, unlike Sukkot, where each day is considered a special day in its own right, that's not true about Pesach, which is why we don't say the full hollow on Pesach. We only say the first day of Pesach. And the rest of us use the half hollow. But anyway, so. Um, but you only say halal on days that are special in their own right? Mm, that the sages enacted them saying yes. So like Rosh Chodesh is not... Rosh Chodesh is... The, anything that the Chum enacted halal, we say full halal. Anything that is a minog, we say half halal. Enacted halal, halal was enacted for the first day of Pesach. By... By the people who enacted halal. <laughs> we call them the halal enactors. Also known as the sages, the rabbis. And then we just took on for the rest? Yeah. Because we're all, you know, very holy, pious people. Okay. So, there's a lot of things about Pesach. Um, We're going to start with some general stuff, and then we'll move to particulars. Good? Okay. So, the... What I want to focus on today, which is the basic idea of Pesach, is that Pesach is a celebration of the exodus from Egypt. The Gula Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Now, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the idea that like, we take things, especially according to Hasidus, that happened and we understand them in a spiritual way that's personally relevant for each person, right? And so therefore, if we're celebrating the exodus from Egypt, there's our, we all have our own personal Egypt, our own personal Mitzrayim. You've heard this idea before? Okay. Um, we have to get out of our personal Egypt. Okay. So what is your personal Egypt? I'm not asking for personal like information. I don't like to have to tell me like my personal like like in general. Like, what are we looking for? Like, like it's not a therapy session, okay? But like, what is the thing that we're looking for? We're talking about our personal Egypt. The constraints of our animal soul. The constraints of our animal soul. So those of us who are tzaddikim don't have a personal Egypt. Um, the well, I mean, I guess just in general, being enveloped. Just in general, being in exile. Let me ask you a question. The Egypt, the personal Egypt, the Mitzrayim, is clearly a negative thing, yes? Mm-hmm. Is that just a general term for all negativity? Like anything negative counts as a personal Egypt and therefore dealing with any kind of negativity is a kind of personal Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? Can you give me a convincing argument that you're right, that it's not a just generic term for all negative things? It's not all negative. Not all negative things limit you. Okay, so you're already tapping in the idea that Egypt and Hebrew Mitzrayim is related to the word Mitzarim, which means constraints, limits. Some negative things have to be destroyed rather than just escaped. Good, right, okay. So the idea that, right, 
that in Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, the Exodus movement, we leave Egypt, right? Then his idea is we're not transforming it, we're not destroying it, right? For instance, we just came from Purim, right? Amalek Haman, right? There's the annihilation of Amalek. It's a different idea. Um, generally speaking, what is the... If someone has done things that are wrong, what is the general approach one is supposed to take to having done wrong things? I, I did something I shouldn't have done, and what I should... Teshuvah. Teshuva. When is the Teshuva season? Rosh Hashanah. El is Pesach then? No. No. Okay. So getting out of Egypt is not an idea of Teshuva, right? It's not the idea of getting, you know, annihilating our enemies, right? So if we look at the the idea, right, of of escaping Egypt, right? There's a kind of of a negative which has to be escaped. It has to be you have to exit it, right? So not, not everything negative fits into that kind of category. There's also the idea that Egypt is a constraint. How did we get out of Egypt historically? The help of God. That's right. So what is, an, what is a personal Egypt? We have three now, three characteristics to identify personal Egypt. What are the three characteristics? Limitation. It has to be something that limits you, constrains you. Something that you leave. Something you have to leave behind. And? You need Hashem to help you. Now let's talk about that last one. In what way do you need Hashem to help you? You have to give yourself completely over to Him. That's right. It's not so much you need Hashem to help you as you more like need to like let Him do the work and be willing to have Him take you out of Egypt, right? Does that make sense, right? The Jews, you know, when, when the Jews fought a war against, um, in Purim, against Haman, Haman's followers, right? They fought the war, right? When in the, in the Hanukkah story, they fought the war, right? Obviously, the Shem's help. Um, in Yitzhiyah's and Tzrayim, the Exodus from Egypt, what did the Jews do? Nothing. Not nothing. They did a few things. They asked Hashem for help. They called out to Hashem. When Hashem said to repair the Korban Pesach, this Paschal offering, they did that, right? And they followed him out into the desert without knowing exactly where they were going, right? But the active participant here was Hashem, right? Through, through the shlichas, through the agency of Moshe, but it's Hashem who's doing it. So Mitzrayim is the kind of thing that really you don't get yourself out of. Rather, Hashem gets you out of it. Hashem gets you out of it. Is that the same idea as tshuva? No, what's tshuva? Yeah, tshuva is something like you, you have to make a change. You have to decide that now you're going to do the right thing. Now you're going to return to a chef. It's a very different idea. Right? Now, the reason I'm starting here is there is a tendency to take whatever is the issue that I personally am involved in or care about and to... Um, project that onto the, the, the spiritual lessons of whatever thing we're talking about, the weekly Torah reading, the Parsha, or the holiday. But it's entirely possible that like, the main theme in a person's life is they need to do tshuva, but it's Pesach time. Right? It could be that the main thing dealing with is they need Hashem to take them out of some kind of personal Egypt, but it's you know, Elul time. Um, and that doesn't mean that obviously you don't observe the holiday. Obviously you observe the holiday. It doesn't mean you can't derive lessons from the holiday, but it means that 
if you want to appreciate what the holiday is about, you have to first look at it for what it is and then see what is relevant to you. And again, maybe it's like extremely relevant, like it's the main thing you have to be focusing on your life, but it could not be. Um, if you look, you'll see that there are seven um, spots for pictures of the seven Chabad Rebbes, although we only have five pictures. Um, the fourth Chabad Rebbe had an innovation. And this innovation is known as a Hemshech. A Hemshech literally means a continuation. So traditionally, the first Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, he would say a Maimra, a Chassidic Discourse. And the Chassidic Discourse would be connected to the weekly Torah reading, usually, sometimes to an event like a wedding, a bar mitzvah, or something like that. Um, occasionally it was on a topic that was somehow relevant or pertinent, but, but it was always topical. And what would happen if the Hasidim did not understand the mime of the discourse? They would go to the Alter Rebbe, the Alter Hasidim, and say, we didn't understand the discourse. And he would, he would say second discourse, which was a, called an explanation, a biur. Um, when the Alter wanted to explain it, it usually used more Kabbalistic language. Because you have to remember the Alter Rebbe's Hasidim were experts in Kabbalistic texts and new, n- new to Hasidus. So they were using the Kabbalah to explain the Hasidus, not the other way around. Okay. Sometimes they didn't understand the beer, the explanatory mimer. So they would come to Alter Rebbe and they would say, we didn't understand the mimer. And he and he would, if he felt so willing, he would say a beer la beer, an explanation of the explanation. So sometimes you have actually a Hasidic discourse, which is just an explanation of a Hasidic discourse with an explanation of a Hasidic discourse. But by next week, it moves on. New mimer, new topic. There was no continuation, right? Um, so the, there was no series of discourses. Okay? And his successor, his son, the Mittler, when he said a uh, mimer, he said a mimer. Sometimes his mimer were extremely long. They could take hours and hours and hours to say. But that was it. The mimer, he said the mimer, and next week he said a new mimer. Um, different topic. And the same with his son-in-law, the altar of his grandson, the Tzemach Zed, the third Rebbe. The Rebbe Marash, the fourth Chabad Rebbe, who we don't have a picture of, but he would be in the middle, in the middle row on the left. He innovated this idea of a series of mimer, a continuation. So the mimer, the next week, picks up where the previous mimer left off. And so you end up with effectively a very, very long mimer broken up into, very long Hasidic discourse broken up into parts. So can we um, just continue on the same topic? Yes. So I'm looking for the book so I can... Yes, excellent. Yeah, I'm fine, but where are all the, where are the books? Where? Yeah. We don't have any. Okay. So, here. So this is his son, the Rebbe Rashab, who also continued in that tradition. So this is a book from, of the Hasidic Discourse in the year Tafrei Samachai, which would be um, 1905. 19, well, 1904-1905. Yeah, 19, yeah. By the way, also when the first Russian Revolution was happening, just so you should know. So here, so it gives you a table context to list of things. This is all gonna become relevant to Pesach, trust me, okay? 
Okay. So you see the book? You see this section of the book? Okay. This is ten maimarim, which form a single hemshech, which means you can really think of this as one single Hasidic discourse, set in ten installments. Each installment had its own questions in the beginning and answers in the end, but you could, it actually flows as one long treatise of a topic. Okay? Whereas the next Maimar are all singular. Um, and there's actually another one in this book, right? So that's how many pages? So that's 94 pages. This Maimar is 94 pages. Um, the longest Hemshech, longest series of Maimar, um, where it's really just one big thing, um, was known by, and they're usually known by their years. So this is Ayin Bays, which is 19. Um, 12 and that took I believe um, until 1917 and it fills three volumes who, who said also Rebbe Shab. but the innovator of this idea was the Rebbe Marash the fourth Hasidic Rebbe um, and so you would have a mimer that would basically be talking about Hanukkah and or Pesach or Rosh Hashanah and it would continue for a month two months a year, two years. And along the way, we touch things relevant to that topic. But overall, that, that whole Hasidic discourse is about a theme that ultimately connected back to the initial time when it was started. Okay. So the Rebbe once explained why was there this shift in the method of Hasidic discourses. And the idea was is that the Rebbe Marash put a shift in focus um, there are two kinds of people. There are people that are the way they're supposed to be, and then there are the rest of us. I think I'm pretty, pretty clear which category we're all in, okay? So, um, when other comes, you increase in joy, yes? Yeah. Did you increase in joy? Did you try? Yeah, let make it um, L comes, you do a genuine shuva. Rosh Hashanah comes, you, you accept Hashem as your king from the depths of your soul, right? Yom Kippur comes, you delight in your con- essential connection to God and, and divest yourself of any worldly attachments. Yes, this is, this is what's happening to you? Familiar. Yeah, right? right? Um, Hanukkah, you access the inner, inner light of the, the soul that penetrates all darkness. Right? That's what happened to you on Hanukkah? During the counting of the Omer, you infuse each one of your human characteristics and attributes with a sense of godly purpose, channeling them in the service of God, one at a time, yes? This is exactly what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, Weekly Torah reading. Do you, like, are, are, would you really say that you're fulfilling the altar of a dictum of truly living with the times that each day is, you know, there's seven sections of the weekly Torah reading, that you're really living with the, that, what's in today's aliyah is something that, like, is, is your whole sense of what life is about and directing you at every, you know, is that what's happening? Or is today more or less like yesterday and last week is more or less like this week and... Do you have major things that take, you know, days, weeks, months to really work on and transform? And it's kind of hard to sync yourself up to the Jewish spiritual calendar? Okay, so 
You're like the rest of us. <laughs> but there are people that are able to tap into what, what's going on. And so if it's Rosh Hashanah, they're, they're in Rosh Hashanah. They're 100% in Rosh Hashanah mode. And then when it's Shabbos of Shuvah, they're doing Shabbos Shuvah. When it's, when it's um, the month of Chedron, like they're able to devote themselves to what the lesson, message, spiritual energy of the time is and be in sync with that. And so, if it's now Hanukkah, on Hanukkah, is there any reason to speak about the importance of Purim? If it's Rosh Hashanah, is there any reason to speak about the importance of Pesach? If it's Pesach, is there any important reason to speak about the importance of uh, Shavuos? Not really, except that they're somewhat connected, but like, you know, each thing you do that time. And so, the Hasidic discourse would focus on connecting to the godliness of that time, that energy, that idea. But the Reb Marash made a shift to pay more attention to Hasidim who are not of such a lofty character, not of such a lofty level. People who, working through a particular spiritual thing can take a very long time, and so they're still working on accepting Hashem as their king, you know, in Hanukkah still. So their, their Rosh Hashanah is extended a few months, spiritually speaking. Right. Or it could be that their Pesach is going on for like, I don't know, a year and a half. And so in that context, the Hasidic mimer of Pesach can actually span months or years. And so what does that tell us? That when we talk about the calendar, the time, there's the time itself, but there's also recognition that there's the person. And some people are in sync with the time, and some people are not 100% in sync with the time. It doesn't mean that the time is no relevance to them, but it also means it would be some, somewhat fake and artificial to pretend that they're in sync when they're not. So is it possible that your biggest issue in life is the, is, is the issues addressed under the themes of Pesach and Yitzhak Mitzrayim? It's possible. But it's also possible the thing you're dealing with is really a, a Rosh Hashanah issue, accepting Hashem as your king. Or a Hanukkah thing about accessing the inner light of the soul to illuminate your mind, whatever it is. All the ideas of Pesach are still relevant to each person. That's why we all have to celebrate Pesach. Aside from the halachic aspects, there's spiritual parts relevant to each person. But you have to separate what they are on their own terms and then separately figure out, okay, now that I know what they are, what does that mean relative to me? Because it could be that I have to put it in a slightly different context because maybe I'm not at a Pesach stage of my life. And that recognition that Hasidus has to be more spread out to people beyond just the people who are as they should be, which was the main focus of the first three Chabad Rebbes, was the fourth Chabad Rebbe shifted to, as the expression goes, Balabatim, just regular people. Each Rebbe kind of focused on a new, new segment of the society and trying to bring Chassidus to them. And so in light of that, um, you know, people who are not always as they should be, people who have their ups and their downs. And so for that, the idea that something can extend over an extended period of time and incorporate elements of other things is a very relevant and important idea. So we want to have that kind of hemshich mindset that we're going to learn about Pesach for what it is, but if you want to apply it into your life, you have to figure out, okay, where does that feature in my life, even if it's not necessarily the major theme of my particular spot and my journey towards Hashem. You might be, again, at a Rosh Hashanah point in your life. You might have been there for the past five years. Who knows? Good? Okay. So, given that, we're going to just talk about that idea as it is. Why can't you get yourself out of your own Egypt, your own Mitzrayim? Why do we need Hashem's help? 
you're locked in something, you need something outside of the locked thing to get you out of it. Very good. All right. In other words, when we say that Mitzrayim is a constraint, right? It, it constrains the way you operate. And if it constrains the way you operate, then whatever you're going to do is still governed by those constraints. I'll give you a physical analogy. Okay? And then when we have the physical analogy, we move on to other things. Can you lift things up? Mm-hmm. Can you lift yourself up? Yeah. Why not? Yeah, because to lift to lift something up means to support it, but like, like you're the thing support, like your legs are supporting you, the lower part of you is supporting you. Like no matter, you can, you can lift something else, but like if you, whatever view you pick up is going to then be to support some other part of you. So you're not actually really going anywhere, right? Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, What's a simple analogy in, 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 in psychology for a Mitzrayim? Simple analogy, what? An addiction? No. No? No, we do not use mental health examples in this class. That's good, I like that, but no, the dark night of the soul is not necessarily something that, that constrains you, it's something you have to confront, I believe, right? That's kind of how you deal with the dark night of the soul. That's more like a chuva kind of thing. Is that like a like a thing that you're talking about? What? Or is that just something that you're saying? Like that is not. I don't know. That's why I'm wondering. What did you mean when you said the dark night of the soul? It's not a technical. It's not a tech modern technical term of psychology, but it does refer to an actual real phenomenon. Right, people, 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 right. People often, they, they, they'll, they go through a, a, a period of kind of loss and rebirth within themselves. That's much more like, if you had to put that on the Jewish calendar, that's more like the three weeks, mourning, then coming into Elul, Rosh Hashanah. It's more of a that kind of a thing, Right. Like the darkness has built up and it drags you down and then you have to face and confront it and grow from it. It's that kind of a dynamic. See what I mean? It's like, it's, a, it's not constrained your whole way of being. Okay, you're right, it's not like a technical term of modern psychology, but it is a real psychological phenomenon that is described and discussed by... by. Okay, um, and have you ever spoken to a person um, who is very... Rational, very intellectual. Mm-hmm. Can that trap a person? Mm-hmm. And when, therefore, when they try to deal with things, they try to deal with things rationally. rationally, intellectually. And are there a lot of things where that works very, very well? Mm-hmm. What would be examples of things that work that works very well for? What is something that the more rational, intellectual are you can do a better job of? College, math, filing your taxes. Okay. <laughs> what? Okay, now let's move it to Judaism. The more rational, intellectual way you are, what are you going to be much better at when it comes to Judaism? Learning Torah. Learning Torah is going to really, you know, 
It's going to be very successful. What else? Teaching? Maybe. That really depends on the students. I'll come back to teaching. Let's talk about parts of Judaism that apply to everybody. Not everybody's a teacher. How about compliance with halacha? Yeah. Like, people are rational intellectual, they'll probably do a better job of that. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Why not? I mean, if we suppose that they accept it. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're, 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 we're talking about them the, the approaching Judaism that way. In other words, they're, they're engaged in their Judaism, but everything is constrained through being rational, everything is constrained through being intellectual, right? So they. They become very detail oriented, very precise. Their, they, their, their, their ability to regulate themselves in terms of the behavior to comply with the, you know, that's, that's the way that works perfectly. How about praying? Is that going to work so well? No. Well, that's not prayer, right? The, you know, the discipline of doing the ritual of saying words. Yeah. But. Prayer is service of the heart. Now we can talk about education. Um, is there a difference between teaching somebody information and educating somebody? Can education happen only using the rational part of your mind? No. No. Education works off of a bond between the educator and the educatee, right? So there needs to be some kind of emotion. Okay. However, if somebody comes just like, I would like to know how to do something, right? I'm already pre-committed to doing it. I just need instruction of how to do it. Then a person can be very, you know, so a person's like, I want to learn how to fly. So I go to flight school. I don't, right? I just need the, the flight instructor to, to know how flying works and how to impart that knowledge, right? If someone comes, I motivate myself to study Talmud. I just need to be guided as to what to do and how to do it. That's, that's different. But if I want to actually be, ed- be educating somebody... Right? Being coldly rational and, and, and methodical about everything is just not going to work. Okay. Now, is the intellect a Mitzrayim? It could be. It could be. Because now, if, you, if, if intellect becomes the way that you approach everything then you have a problem because now once you've decided that you need to like get out of the intellect, who's, how did you decide that you need to get out of the intellect? Okay, and so now you're intellectually ready to intellectually get out of the intellect. So now you're intellectually, <laughs> it just doesn't work, does that, right? You see the ridiculous, like, like, like you're trapped. This is actually an example of Chassidus, of Mitzrayim. What if a person has a deep intellectual engagement and appreciation with God. But that traps them and that becomes the only mode in which they can relate to God. They can't pray. Right? Let's talk about mitzvahs. Can they comply with the halacha? Sure. But can they do mitzvahs out of warmth? Mitzvahs are supposed to be done with, with, with chayas, with vitality, because that, that doesn't happen from the intellect. They can do the mitzvah out of principle. Now, so a person can become trapped in that place. 
How do you get out of that place? If that's really, you get stuck in that space, how do you get out of that space? Yeah. Not, whatever you're going to do is just going to be a reworking of that issue, right? Okay. What if your whole, another example, what if your whole way of approaching Judaism is what's in it for you? Like you really, you, you rely on the ulterior motive. So you can like go from like, oh, you know, I, I realize like I really shouldn't do Torah mitzvahs to like go to heaven and avoid the punishment of hell because like, you know, that's selfish. I should do Judaism in order to have more spiritual growth. And you say, well, look, that person, like you think to yourself, like, why is it more spiritual growth? Well, because when you have spiritual growth, you live a more meaningful life. And like, like there's this way in which that everything the person is doing is relying on how they right so they can grow within that space but they can't get out of that space like why is it important for me to have more bittel remember yesterday's class bittel so why is it good for me to have more bittel because then you can have let Hashem's help you and that's good for so I'm <laughs> you see the problem here <laughs> Like, I'm going to, I'm going, the reason why having Bittal is a good thing is because, because having more Bittal, I get, so the whole idea of Bittal is not about me. The reason it's important for it not to be about me is so that it enhances the quality of my life. So that's kind of like a corruption of the Bittal, right? The Bittal is in Egypt. It's, in, it's, it's trapped. Okay, so we have two Egypts already, right? One Egypt is the Egypt of the intellect. Another Egypt is the Egypt of the ego, Right? Should we want more Egypts? Sure. Okay, we'll do one more. Okay. Um, what if you're working off of a false premise? Like you genuinely have bought into a false premise. But not like an I, false idea, a false premise. The difference being, what I mean by a false premise is that a premise becomes something that underlies the way you approach everything else. Right? Um, so what would be an example of a false premise that a person could be operating under? So I'm going to give you one in psychology and then I'll do, do an example in, in, in Judaism. Okay? Some people... Um, they're... When something happens, their immediate reaction, their immediate way of interpreting it is that somebody did something to me. Yeah. Um, it's like some, some, somebody's things goes missing, right? This happens all the time as a kid. Right? Something goes missing. Someone stole it! Like, what is someone stole? You think someone went into your pants to steal, like, your, 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 your uh, what do you call it? Your, your bus card? Really? Like, Maybe you just didn't put it back. Like, there's a lot of other explanations. Why is the immediate, immediate way of looking at it that someone, someone stole something? Right? There, there's something false in that basic premise, right? Now, if that premise becomes deep and deep and deep enough, what ends up happening is that it governs all of your thinking. And if that happens, then can you, can you even begin to question whether that premise is valid or not? Right. It's a dangerous place to be, right? Uh, like, so some people, like... like you see this, like, like some, some people, like somebody, somebody did something to you because people like bump into each other and do stuff. 
And they, the premise is that whenever anyone does something, then they intended to hurt me. And if a person has really bought into that and that governs their whole thinking, that's going to have very negative consequences in their life, right? Now, if the person can be more rational about it, they can realize that's false, right? But, what if they, but if that has become the premise that their whole mind is operating off of, then, like, how do you get out of that? <laughs> yeah? Okay. So here's, so, here's a false premise. Hashem is using you to achieve some ultimate end. There's Hashem has some grand plan, right? And you're here for that. And therefore, if the value that you have only lays in how you fulfill. Now, if you really buy into that premise, what does that do to your Judaism? It makes you feel like a slave. Makes you feel like a slave. It makes you feel like there's no notion of a personal connection with Hashem in Judaism. Therefore, if you feel a need for personal connection, you'll have to look for it where? Other than Hashem. Other than Hashem and outside of Judaism. <clears throat> See, this could be a very serious problem, right? Why is that a false premise? Because it's false. It's not true. It's not true. Is that any different from saying Hashem put us on the earth for a reason and we have a mission that we have to do and that's the purpose of our life? The purpose of sending my children to school is? Very good. The purpose of my children is? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I find the question repulsive. Okay. My children are not a means to an end. My children going to school is a means to an end. So if you ask the question, why did Hashem send me into the physical world? That might have a purpose. But that's a very different thing than talking about your whole existence. My very being, right. Right? That the whole notion of speaking that the soul came into the world is because we're not talking about the value of you, your, your very essential being. We're talking about what's the purpose of you being here, right? I, I had... Is there something interesting up yeah. there? Yeah. <laughs> you asked the man <laughs> that... Okay. Okay, um, okay so, so I had... Uh, I had my kids in one school and I moved them to another school. Do you know why I moved them? Um, it wasn't getting the end. Right, what's the end? Good. I have some kids who don't behave as well as some other kids. So I was thinking of exchanging them for better behaved kids. Kids who are going to produce more nachas. <laughs> that, that sounds very wrong, right? Okay, so, but in other words, as an idea that we're here for a purpose of a fine idea, but that becomes the premise in which you have to then understand everything, what does it end up doing? It distorts the Judaism. And it creates serious problems. And if that really becomes... Now, I can see that's not a premise you've totally bought into that we're here for because I was able to explain it to you. And you understood my point. I haven't bought into what? The premise that the only reason, the only reason we, we have any being whatsoever is because the God has a grand plan and are just there to serve his grand plan and that's it. If you totally bought into it, when I said what you... When I, you wouldn't have understood my point. 
You know how I know this? I know people who, like, that same conversation they had, but then they fight back. Like, it can't be. No, no, no. But, no, like, 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 like it's like, it's like talking to the, the kid who thinks that someone stole their, their wallet. And, like, they're totally resistant to any rational explanation that maybe there's another way to look at it. I don't mean that you're convinced by what I'm saying. That's a different discussion, right? But you're like, okay. I mean, that's a different way of thinking. I don't know what to talk about. It's a consideration. But if something becomes the very premise that your mind is operating off of, even when someone explains to you as clearly as possible that there's maybe some other way to look at it, you're just like, you can't. And then, so what ends up happening, anything doesn't fit into that thing, end up getting cut out. So all the parts of Judaism. So uh, I, I have a friend, he, he, he teaches Hasidus. Um, and he was teaching Hasidus to a group of, of people who, who, who were, grew up not in Chabad and became involved in Hasidus. And they were very, like, sometimes very, sometimes people grew up in one stream of Jews and moved to another, become a little too, um, they don't take everything in the right proportion. So, so he was explaining the idea of loving Hashem and what it means to love Hashem and how to work on loving Hashem. And, and one, of the, one of the students raises his hand and says, how can... But, but that's all, it's all for you. Like, it's all about your relation, your connection. That's all yeshus. It's all your ego. It's all your this. It's like, there's no bitl in that. And so my friend says, and since when did the, since when did the pasuk, v'ahavta Hashem lekecha, love Hashem your God, become a negative commandment? There is a positive commandment to love Hashem, right? So like, you've bought into some premise in such a warped way that you've now had to take a mitzvah in the Torah and completely distort it into a negative thing. Like something's off. Now, if, if it's just a mistaken understanding, mistaken idea, we can correct that. But if that becomes the very premise by which you then relate to everything, then you're not able to hear that it's wrong. So it can't get corrected. And then the person, like, like again, the person, we do have a need for validation. We do have a need to sense that, like, we can connect to something meaningful and personally, etc. And if your understanding of Judaism doesn't allow that, and that's a premise that you've really bought into the point your whole mind works off of that, then if you feel those needs, you have to find some other outlet. And all those parts of Judaism that require that end up getting neglected. And if that and and, that, and if a person gets trapped in that spot, that's Egypt. You see what I'm, like you see, the idea of, of Egypt is it's something that really traps the person. And that's the thing is that if that you're trapped, you can't get out yourself. You're constrained, and Hashem needs to take you out of Egypt. So there's nothing you could do. Like, it's just like, if Hashem comes in. Well, the Jews were enslaved in Egypt, and? They asked for Hashem's help, but... They asked for Hashem's help. How could you ask for Hashem's help if you're not aware of your... of the things that are trapping you? Because, like you said, you're... If you're so in it, then you're trapped. You don't realize that that thing is limiting you, so you can ask for, for Hashem, like... So, there's an idea 
that even when we're trapped, there's still always some element that's aware of that. Um, there's an idea, maybe some of you heard that there's like 40, there's 50 gates of impurity and the Jews sunk to the level of 49 and Hashem took them out right before they sunk to the 50th because if they sunk to the 50th, they wouldn't have been redeemed. Have you ever heard this idea before? Doesn't matter the details. The idea is there is a place where a person is sunk so low that they are not redeemed. And part of the idea of the covenant, because again, if we look in the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, what happened is that Hashem took the Jews out of Egypt because of his covenant with Avraham. So out of his covenant with us, Hashem makes sure that we never sink to the point where we're not able to realize that we're trapped. We're not able to ask for help. We're not able to do what's necessary to receive that help. But that itself is actually a covenant that's a promise that Hashem made, right? So if you look again at the story, what happens? Hashem makes a covenant with Abraham, and the result of that covenant is, is that he fulfills his promise and takes us out of Egypt. But you're right, if we just took the idea of Egypt on its own, the idea of the Mitzrayim on its own, it's theoretically possible that you get to a point where the person is, is trapped to the point that they're entirely, they can't, they can't even ask for help. They can't, there's nothing redeemable left. But we don't get to that place. Hashem will redeem us. And what that means is that we, there's that we, we always have the ability to do what's needed in order to ask and receive Hashem's help. And the whole month of Nisan in general and the festival of Pesach in particular and the night of the Seder especially so is all about, um, when we talk about spiritually, about things that connect to that idea of being able to ask Hashem for help and receive that help and what that help looks like. Now, if I ask you again, and now I'm asking you about personal issues, but you do not have to answer out loud, can you think of anything that is a personal Egypt when it comes to Judaism, whether it's in the matter of observance, the matter of how we feel about things, how we relate to other people in context of Judaism, but in terms of our connection with Hashem, can anyone think of things that are, for them, fit this kind of description of Mitzrayim? Is it different than when I asked the question originally? About just, what's your personal Egypt? Now, I want to be fair. If you're like, my personal Egypt is my bad habit of doing this, and I want to conquer it, and you come with the way of conquering it, and that's great, that's wonderful, you did it. It's like, it's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not coming to knock like that. But, it, but, but you took the idea to the, your place, and, and so lost what the idea actually is. You want to take the idea to your place while preserving what the idea is. Can a tzaddik be in Mitzrayim? Yeah. Why couldn't a tzaddik be? Could there be something that constrains a tzaddik's relationship with Hashem? That they're trapped by? That they can't get out of because that they're just stuck there? Yeah. I mean, those things are not going to be things like ulterior motives in Judaism, right? Or, or something like that. But what, what would be something that maybe a tzaddik could be stuck by? An Egypt for a tzaddik. They only go to front and don't have a job working in the fields. That's not a tz- <laughs> What? 
That's not a tzaddik. It's Egypt. And who says that's in Egypt? Who really needs to eat anyway? God provides support for the family. No. Um... It's a reality. Sometimes you could feel it, sometimes you could not. But like, it's not like a physical thing. Like no, I mean, no. There are physical mitzvahs. Like, you know, there's the fact that we cannot do certain mitzvahs because we're in exile. So in that sense, that's a mitzvah. There was the fact that Jews were enslaved in Egypt. That was actually a physical mitzvah, right? Um, Jews, you know, that are, were in communist Russia, I mean, that, that was a, clearly a kind of a physical mitzvah. There is that element as well, but I'm focusing on the spiritual side. Now, whether you're, you're, you're experiencing it or not is a side point. And sometimes a person might not even be aware of what's happening. They might have to pay attention to realize that they're in the, trapped in that way. Okay, so what, what, would be a, what would be a Mitzrayim for a tzaddik? I'll tell you a story if you can't come up with one. Okay. When... David Melech, King David, brought the Aaron, the Holy Ark, um, to Yerushalayim. There was a big celebration. There was a big parade in the street. And David was very, very happy. And so he was dancing at the head of the procession. And back in the day, they didn't wear clothing like we wore clothing. They wore basically robes with no undergarments. And David was dancing in a quite exuberant manner. And let's just say his robe did not always cover all of his body. That's what happened. Now, David's wife, Michal, daughter of the former king, Shaul, she saw what um, was happening, and she was very displeased. She thought that this was disgraceful behavior on behalf of, you know, the, he's the king of the Jewish people, representative of God, and he's, like, dancing in the street like some common, like, you know, drunkard, you know, person who has no sense of personal dignity. It's a disgrace, and she rebuked him for it. Was she right, or was she wrong? Doesn't make sense for the anointed one of God, king of the Jewish people, to dance in the street in such a way where he exposes himself. It sounds like she's right. It does sound like she's right, right? It sounds like that's an inappropriate behavior, right? Yeah. Okay. So even if I approach this purely from a place of I'm only interested in godliness, I'm only caring about God's will, right? No ego, no ulterior motives, um, Right? I appreciate the significance of the event, but it just seems that that is an inappropriate thing to do. David Amelch did not accept her criticism. He said, in fact, that he was in the right, that um, the joy in bringing the ark should cause a person to lose all sense of propriety. That's the kind of intense joy one should experience from such a thing. And... Michal was punished as a result of this. Michal was not coming from a place of the evil inclination, the animal soul. She was coming from a place of what's called the Chassidus Seichel of Kedusha. 
holy reason. If I think about it rationally, and all I care about is the glory of God, the sanctity of God, it seems what David did was wrong. So where's the limit? Where's the constraint? Where's the Mitzrayim in that? Yeah. Why? Why do? Why do I have to constrain godliness to notions of propriety and dignity? What? Who made that rule up? There is that concept, one hundred percent. No one's saying that, that. No one's saying that. No one's saying the concept doesn't exist. The question is: Is that the binding rule in all situations and all times? Is that the constraint? So the issue is that she wasn't looking at the context. She was just the thinking. issue is that she that her, that that way of looking at it was the only way she could see it, and she didn't recognize that there was in fact here was appropriate something else entirely. In other words, the idea of seichel of kedusha, holy intellect, is not a bad thing. Have you ever heard the expression that if you, all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Mm-hmm. That's what's right. If all you have is Seichel of Kedusha, you can't recognize the joy that, that takes a person beyond any kind of self-awareness, any kind of sense of propriety, any sense of dignity, any sense of purpose and objective. A kind of primal joy in, 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 in the presence of God. You, there's no place for that in a rational mind. It's not that reason is a bad thing, but why is reason constraining God? It should be God determining when reason is used. Avraham and Moshe, two very holy people. Hashem told both of them that he was going to do something that was very harsh, involving collective punishment. The Avraham, Hashem told Avraham that he was going to destroy the city of Sodom for their sins. And Moshe, Hashem told Moshe that he was going to destroy the Jewish people for the sin of the golden calf. What was Avraham's response? No. One tzaddik. Ten ten. Yeah, we started with 50 tzaddikim. Why do you start with 50 tzaddikim? Because there were five cities, so therefore... Ten siddiqim per city. Sounds reasonable, right? And if there aren't that, then drop it down to 45. Why 45? Nine siddiqim per city plus Hashem. Okay, sometimes you can count Hashem, right? Did Hashem accept that argument? No. So then you drop down to the next would be... You do eight per city, right? We skipped eight because you already knew that Hashem didn't save the world when with Noah and there were eight righteous people, Noah and his three sons and their wives, so a total of eight. So eight is not enough to save anybody. So he jumped down, okay, well, what if we can have 30? So, we'll, sorry, what if we have 40? So at least four of the cities have 10 tzaddikim, right? No, 30, 20, 10. So what happened at that point? Avram. Gave up. He didn't have an argument. That his argument was that it's unjust for Hashem to keep them alive, to, to, to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. But if there aren't enough righteous people to, for their merit to, to you know, protect the community, then he has no, he has no what is he supposed to do, right? When Hashem said he's going to destroy the Jewish people because of the sin of the golden calf, what did Moshe do? 
Anyone know what Moshe did? He told Hashem to erase him. Yeah, it's like, you want to you, you get rid of the Jews? That's fine, but I'm out. Do that stuff on your own. I'm not involved. Don't, don't, don't come to me, because Hashem said, look, I'll get rid of the Jews. I'll start over with you. He's like, you know what, Hashem? You want to get rid of the Jews? Take me out of your whole Torah. You can do this thing on your own. I'm not playing any part of this stuff. Who had the more mature response? <laughs> who had a, who was stuck in a, in a kind of an Egypt? I was like, I'm a more mature, but look, at the end of the day, if it's, if it's not a good argument, like, what am I supposed to do? I can't, what am I, I going to do? Just have a, you know, just, just pout on the side and wait for Hashem to change his mind? I was just like, you know what, Hashem? No. I'm out. Do it on your own. <laughs> Both Sadiqim, right? Now, does it mean that making arguments is not an appropriate thing to do ever? No, it doesn't mean that. There was a there was a great sage. Um, his name is Rabbi Chanina ben Tardion. Have you heard of Rabbi Chanina ben Tardion? Do you pay attention in Yom Kippur prayers? So there's a part about the ten martyrs. He's one of the ten martyrs. It's the part where like I'm passed out because of the fasting. Like, oh. but, yeah. On non Yom Kippur, I, I've looked inside it. But there's poems about the ten martyrs. Ten martyrs were ten sages who were killed during the times of the Mishnah. Rechina ben Tardion was a sage when the Roman government outlawed the practice of Judaism and specifically the study of Torah. Rabbi Chaim ben Tardin used to teach Torah publicly to Jews. And he went to go visit his friend who was sick named Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma. And Rabbi Yossi said to him, Chanina, I have heard that you're teaching Torah in public. And he said, yes I am. He says, don't you know that we've been subjugated by the Romans and... Um, Rabbi Chanina says, well, Hashem will have mercy. And Rabbi Yassi ben Kisma says, it's Hashem who subjugated us with the Romans, right? They're, they're Hashem's tool. I wouldn't be surprised if you don't end up being burned alive together with the Sefer Torah you're teaching from. Well, is that what I'm doing? So Rabbi then asked the next reasonable question. Well, am I going to go to Olam Haba? Wait. Not, I'm going to stop teaching. I just want to know, like, when I get, you know, burned alive with the, with the Torah scroll, am I going to Olam Haba? And so Rabbi Yosef and Kisma asked, well, have you done anything special? <laughs> and Rabbi Chinnah says, well, you know, there was this one time where I had set aside some money for my Purim Suda. And then someone came around collecting tzedakah and I gave the money for my Purim Suda to tzedakah by mistake. So I was technically entitled to go to the tzedakah money and collect the money from the tzedakah to pay back and use it for my firm suda. But I didn't do that. I just figured, like, you know, if Bishkacha Pratis, the money went to tzedakah, so the money went to tzedakah and extra tzedakah. It doesn't hurt to get extra tzedakah. It's all good. And so Rabbi Yosemite says, I hope I merit to be in your place in Olam Haba. 
Anyway, Rabbi Yosef and Kisma died. The Romans, because they're such civilized people, went to his funeral to honor the great Jewish sage. On the way back from the funeral, they saw Rabbi Hanim ben Tardin teaching Torah publicly. They had him arrested. They wrapped him in the Torah scroll. They put the Torah, they, they wrapped him with, around him, um, wool soaked in water so he doesn't die quickly because unlike Jewish law and in Roman law, death is, in, is not the punishment. The punishment is the pain of dying. So you want to draw that out as much as possible. And then they set him on fire in front of all of his students. That's a weird story, right? Now, Rabbi Chanir Bintardion died for his devotion to teaching Torah, right? Shouldn't be kind of obvious he's going to Elam he's going to the world to come. But no, it's because of the tzedakah money that he gave without thinking and didn't think to get, take collect back because it was owed to him. That's why he's going to Ghana. And he like hung on to that as a potential reason why one day, if he ever was asked the question, this could be a reason why he might. So, um, what is that story about? I feel like you explained the story. I did. Yeah, beginning of the. I did. The story is a very relevant story. There's something called there's something called our nature. And nature is a Mitzrayim. Any nature is Mitzrayim. Because what is a nature? If I let go of this, what's going to happen? Maybe it'll float in the air. Why not? And whatever something's nature constrains it, right? What is the nature of people who are very devoted to ideas and study and principle. They're willing to give up their life for that. Yeah, that is that is a that is a that is a that is a kind of human personality trait. Yes, but those people tend to also be very precise, very de- dedicated to what needs to be done, very principled. Are they frivolous with their money? Mm-hmm. So if they if they use money allocated for one mitzvah for tzedakah by mistake what would such a person naturally do? Go to the pushka, take it back and allocate it back to that mitzvah of the perm suda, right? Did he do that? Now, here's the key thing. Why didn't he do that? This is key. Did he not do that because he understood the importance of not going according to your nature? Or because it didn't occur to him that like mm-hmm. there's anything wrong with giving extra tzedakah? And so what does that tell us? Was he limited by his own nature? Or he had some awareness of something beyond his, right? There's an idea that people have certain temperaments. So Alter, but when he mentions the story, he says that, look, there are people who are very, I guess we would call them very scholarly, very academic, um, kind of, you know, more deep, some morose people. And um, if they, you know, grow up in some other society, they end up becoming like, you know, deep philosophers and mystics and, you know, thinkers and will even reject money and other pleasures of this world in order to pursue depth and wisdom and meaning and ideas and stuff like that. History is full of such people, yeah? What if such a person is born in a Jewish community, specifically an Orthodox Jewish community? What are they going to do? But that's just there. So it's a reflection of their Mitzrayim. 
And so Rabbi Yis- and so Rabbi Yisrael went to know is is all of my Torah study ju- just my nature? It's just Mitzrayim, or is there anything to do with God in here? And so Rabbi Yisrael says, "Well, have you done anything special? Anything that's out of that cat category?" He says, "Yes, I have." Ah, well, that's an indication that there's something else going on here. It's not just your nature. Um, how did Hashem take us out of Mitzrayim? He did miracles. What are miracles? Above nature. Above nature. A violation of nature. Right? Not like Purim words within nature. Just like a total like... <laughs> Moshe comes to Paro and says, let my people go so that they may serve me. So says the Lord of the Hebrews. Right? Okay. And um, Paro says no. And so we have some plagues, right? Water turns to blood. Frog infestation. Lice, etc., 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 right? Just on a very simple thing. What's the message here? Don't mess with God. <laughs> Actually, if you, if you really want to be very specific, if you, there's, there's a beautiful uh, a Barbanel, the commentary on the Chumash. And he actually, if you look in the Chumash, it breaks the plagues into three sets of three plus the last plague. And in each plague, there's a warning given, along with a message about God. Um, um, one is, I am God. One is, I am God. There is no other. One is, I am God amongst the earth. Um, and then the second, the second plague in each set comes with a warning and no message, and the last plague just comes, right? So it's like, there's like... The, so the nine plagues, there really is this, like, this message of trying to convey to Paro, like, no, 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 God is like real, and God isn't constrained by anything, and there's no, like, for Hashem, there's no Mitzrayim, there's no Egypt, there's no constraints, and even the natural world bends to his will. But the last plague is actually just, um, you know, you shouldn't mess with God's kids. It's a bad idea. He gets ticked about that. In fact, that was that was already in the beginning. It says that if you if you if you, because you've afflicted my firstborn, I will afflict your firstborn. So, so there is actually these two kind of different messages. One is something about the reality and greatness of God, and the other is you really just shouldn't mess with my kids. Which, as a parent, I can tell you, messing with somebody's kids is a good way to get on their enemies list. Um, but yeah, there's all these miracles. Is yeah, it's like this this notion of nature just not relevant? It's like, yeah. Are there things that are not in your nature? How how do you go about doing that? Doing what? Trying to like like making making sure that you're not just acting in your nature. Like one second, one second, one second. Okay. If nature is a constraint. How does one get out of their own constraints? They don't. Very good. Isn't there a place for nature, though? There is, but we're learning about Pesach. <laughs> if we're learning about Purim. I just said it's so extreme. It is extreme. It is, it is extreme. That's the thing. That's the thing. It is extreme. Everything in Judaism is extreme. It's all extreme. It's just extreme in different directions. So that's exactly the point, right? On Pesach, Pesach is about, you know, nature. We have to transcend nature and reject nature and above nature and all that whole kind of stuff. 
Um, and, and really, if you think about that, that means that, you know, you, 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 how do you get beyond nature? You don't get yourself beyond nature because your nature is, is constraining you. So how do you get beyond nature? Hashem has to get you out. Okay, the, where the help of Hashem comes from, what that looks like, and specifically in the context of Pesach, is not the topic of today's class. The topic of class is just what the idea of the exodus from Egypt as an idea is. The getting out of... So now, are there other times in Judaism where we emphasize the opposite? For instance, um, Purim, the idea that everything happened within a natural order, right? Within the regular way of things working. There is a time for that. What? Yeah, where where is the where is the where are the nature defying miracles in Purim? Are we talking about the, the No, no, just very simple. The story of Purim. Yeah, the guy becomes king. He's not exactly the most uh, stable person, and he secures his power and he makes a wild party for all of his ministers, and then decides he should probably make a party for the common people in the capital. Pretty normal thing. Yeah, he gets drunk, humiliates his wife and takes bad advice and gets rid of her. Not the first time that's happened in history, yeah? Uses his power to find the woman he wants. P palace intrigue and somebody finds out about it and reports it to the king. Like nothing here is like, there's no blood, water turning to blood, no fire and ice coming down as hail, right? It's just not happening, right? It's not. There's not like a violation of nature. So yeah, if we were giving class on part of the importance of the miracles being within natural order and nature being a valuable thing, it's creation of Hashem, it has a purpose, blah, 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 but that's not what we're talking about now. How, how, my question is, how do you identify the problem? Because like obviously my nature is limiting me, but like that's just very well, Now, this is the thing I want to end off on. Is it really that important to identify your personal Egypt? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because then you can ask specifically I want to help well let me let me let me let me but here's the issue is the issue the this or the issue that it's in Egypt so I think any amount of casual self reflection realizes that you are constrained by things whether you're aware of those precise constraints or not whether it's you're stuck in your head you're stuck in your ego you're constrained by your particular nature of your personality Right, you're trapped as Michal, the wife of uh, of David the Melech, was by by the, the the godly intellect, whatever it is. Right, at the end of the day, like it, it, it's not. It's pretty clear that we're all trapped in some way. We're all constrained in some way, right? Okay, and that's not a good thing. So, can we just ask Hashem to get us out of whatever the constraints are? After all, if Hashem is getting us out, shouldn't more of the focus be placed on asking for His help, realizing that it's His help we need and how what that help looks like and how to receive it, rather than what the problem is? Because after all, we're not the ones solving the problem. So then there is no need for us to realize that it's been I don't know. It'll be no. Well, I mean, we celebrate Pesach every year. So, however much you get out of a personal Egypt next year, you'll have new Egypts you have to get out of. So maybe as much as we can talk about personal Egypts, and it's important to realize that in some sense, it could also be that we might be, have a tendency to put too much focus on finding our personal Egypt, as if that's going to help the problem. It's I think the once you recognize that you have a personal Egypt. 
that's enough to generate help. Do you have to like figure out exactly the full range of your personal Egypts and how bad they are and like No. Now it's like it's like if you're doing surgery, do you really need to know the problem and all of its detail in order to address it? Yeah. If you're the patient, though, do you need to know the problem? <laughs> like, it hurts, doctor. And the doctor's like, you need some tests. And the doctor's like, you need some surgery. Like, doctor, do I really need surgery? And he's like, well, I mean, you know, the advice that the Rebbe gives is, you know, surgeon, you should always get a second opinion about things like surgery. And so you go to second doctor, and the doctor's like, you really need surgery. And they consult, and they think, well, you need this, and what we need to do. I'm like, okay. You need to recognize that there's a problem. But sometimes especially because we tend to gravitate to things that are more directly we can relate to, things that we have, feel we have some kind of, of contact with or control over, it's a little bit easier to focus on the problem and finding the problem, identifying the problem, what the problem is and how bad the problem is, rather than saying, okay, okay, I got it. There's a problem. I might be constrained by my intellect, by my ego, by my sense of uh, propriety, by my personality, whatever it is. I mean, there's constraints, and that limits and corrupts my service of Hashem and my ability to connect Him, regardless of if I'm on a very, very high level, a very, very low level. Once I can find that and acknowledge that that's true, I don't need to like explore every nuance of that. I need to turn to Hashem and ask for help. And I know how, need to know how to receive that help. And that probably needs to be the main focus. So tomorrow, instead of talking about Mitzrayim, we're going to be talking about leaving Mitzrayim. And how Hashem takes us out of Mitzrayim. Okay. Next week, we will start talking about things like Matzah, and Chometz, and Seder, and all those things like that. We'll talk about specific things, what they represent, what they mean, what lists we're going through. The Rebbe said that about surgery... The Rebbe said to get second opinions about major medical things, and in general, one should try and get medical advice from someone who has a personal interest in your well-being. Um, and if the doctors disagree, then get a third opinion. So reconcile between the two. When, when you're taken out of your personal Egypt, like there are also parts of your nature that are good and they're supposed to be there. That's true. So you're just taken out of the parts that hold you back? After we get out of Mitzrayim, I believe the next thing we do is count the Omer. Which is refine what you have left? Something. Something else, though. It's not going out of Egypt. That's my point. It's something else, right? See, th this is the thing. If you make, take an idea and you make everything that has to be... No one said that nature is the essence of evil. No one said that everything is just about getting out of Mitzrayim. Well, there's an idea of getting up and trying every day as well. But, like, if on the scroll of the year, there's, 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 there's Pesach, and then there's the counting of the Omer, and then there's giving of the Torah, right? And then there's the three weeks, and then there's, this, and then there's the seven weeks of comfort and Elul and doing Shuvah and accepting Shemes. Like, there's a whole cycle of different things. We're, we're focusing on one specific thing. And yes, we're going to take that thing to its extreme so we fully understand it. But in, in life, there's a whole... It's like, every day is not Pesach. Right, but I'm... I'm asking, like, is when he takes us out of Mitzrayim, it's it's out of like the negative parts of our nature, not just out of our entire no. Nature. It's a fact that you know what it takes us out of the constraint, whatever the constraint was. Constraint is the thing that that you're stuck in. So that means all the positive things about that also leaves. No, it means you're not stuck. So it plays a factor, but it doesn't check you. What it means after that is an open question. Like, what do you do? What do you do with it once you, once you're not stuck? I don't know. Do you get rid of it? Do you transform it? Do you utilize it differently? I don't know. It depends what it is, right? 
That's not the point. If we're constrained, then our connection to Hashem is, is limited, it gets corrupted, things get left out, things get distorted as a result of that. And, and if it's a really, you're constrained by it, that means you're, you, whatever you're gonna do is gonna be stuck in that, and so you need Hashem's help to get out and give a bunch of different examples of what that would look like. Good? Okay. So my, my takeaway message is please don't prepare for Pesach by making a list of your personal Egypts. Maybe make a list of how to uh, receive Hashem's help. More effective. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. Mm, maybe. I have to see how much I get through the Pesach stuff. I have to see about getting through the Pesach stuff. We'll see. There's so much to talk about Pesach. I know. I didn't say no. I didn't say yes. Like if Hashem takes you out, let's say let's say it's Seichel you brought that example. Yeah. If Hashem takes you out of that, does that mm-hmm. not? There's still a place for that. That's true, but that would be what's called Mitzrayim the Kedusha. But if Hashem takes you out of the self-absorbedness that makes you everything about how you're going to personally benefit from it. Does that necessarily need to be, you know, brought back and used, or maybe you just leave that behind? It's different times. And once you leave it, what's left, and how you pick up the pieces from that, what you do with that, is going to depend. Like that, that's beside. That's a different topic. Are we going to talk about that? No, that's not Pesach. We might talk about this somewhere. Because, like, what does that even mean to leave something? Because you're leaving the fact that it constrains you. That's all.